Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome back to Out of Place. Just a few quick things to talk about this week and then this week's episode. First... We are coming up on the end of our second season. Episode 212 uh, will be our last one. So uh, get ready and good luck. We're not quite sure what the future for Out of Place will look like right now. Uh, We definitely want to make more of it. um, But we'll have more news about that soon. In the meantime, coming this December is an all-new series written by Ben Counter, who you've come to know and love. Uh, Ben is writing a very special 12-episode miniseries for one of my other shows, SCP Archives. It's a really incredible series. It's shaping up to have uh, all the staples of classic Ben writing that you've come to know, uh, as well as a lot of terrifying, horrifying sound design that needs to be done. Um, More news on that coming a little later this month. But as we're nearing the end of this season, wanted to give you guys a heads up. That will be the next Ben Counter audio fiction story. Uh, But we will have more in the future. And second, if you do want to see more out-of-place content, the best way to let us know is by sharing this show with a friend or by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to help get our show into the ears of new listeners, and it lets us know that you care about the show. With all of that said and done, this week's episode. Strange, I think, how things change so quickly. You'd imagine it would be something I got used to by now, what with seeing worlds wiped out by a single finger on the nuclear button or a rock from space out of nowhere. But for whatever reason, we still expect there to be some warning. I can't complain. The field team lost a man last mission, and from the catastrophes I've documented, it feels like I've lived a blessed existence. 
Nevertheless, things can spring up out of nowhere and feel like they mean a big deal. I suppose I'm still human, even if I do have to contemplate things well beyond human experience. I went out with some of the logistics guys again on Friday. I'm getting used to saying yes when Rico suggests we hang out. I didn't realise it was more of a house party than ribs and beers in a sports bar. We went to a ranch owned by someone he knows. Uh, Rico knows a lot of people, and there must have been 50 people there. Not my natural habitat, I admit, but I got to a small talk and, tapping my foot to Tejano music, downed a few Diet Cokes and managed to politely refuse anything stronger. Then Rico clapped me on the back and introduced me to his friend, Maya, a very pretty girl with long black hair and big silver hoop earrings. And they kissed. Then he said the pizzas were coming out of the oven. One of Rico's cousins said Maya and Rico had been together long distance for a while. She was thinking of moving closer. I nodded. I said, that's nice. While the pizza burned the roof of my mouth. Honestly, I'm not sure what I thought would happen. Rico was just being a good colleague, of course he was. What reason did I have to think he meant anything more? Why would I think he'd be interested in a mopey data nerd like me? Maybe he felt sorry for me and I was a sort of project for him. Take the greyest guy in the building and teach him how to have fun. So one day I have that sort of warm, comforting hope that something might happen to make my life substantially better, and then the next I wake up feeling more alone than I was before. Hardly anything, just seeing the girlfriend Rico had all along and suddenly everything's changed. The sort of tiny, personal apocalypse to go with the full-sized ones already filling most of my brain. Then I remember that the field team is only three men when it used to be four, and I try to count my blessings. The latest mission was considered a low-risk one, so Extant was given the go-ahead to check it out in person. It was an abandoned world where the people had left or disappeared rather than been destroyed. No damage or excess radiation, no burned cities or battlefields. We'd seen these before, versions of Earth with all the cities and landmarks in place, just without the people. The weird stuff started with the broadcasts. This was a quiet Earth without telecommunications or media broadcast, just a bunch of automatic beacons like weather stations and GPS. Then the orbital probe picked up one broadcast that stood out. It was a series of dense bursts of data with an intermittent basic message. This is planet Earth. We are the human race. This is our history and culture for anyone who can preserve it. Only that part was intact. The actual data was corrupt and garbled as if the system producing it had gone wrong and there was no one to fix it. That meant whatever had happened to this timeline, the human race had seen it coming. At least some of them had anticipated the end and tried to put as much of Earth's culture into a form that passers-by might hear, or maybe that survivors could use once they emerged from their bunkers. The source of the broadcast was a satellite in orbit, beyond the means of extant to check out any closer. The second thing was the environment. There's a level of climate change and pollution that corresponds to our timeline's level of human activity. The target world, however, was significantly below that. The permanent damage was similar, but variables like CO2 and sulfur emissions were well down. The tech guys estimated the power industry and other environmentally significant activities had taken a downturn about 30 to 50 years before the present. The technology of the broadcast, however, was a lot later. The cities were dark. Some of them were overgrown and half-collapsed. Others looked like they'd only just been abandoned. 
there was only one with any activity at all. London. A small cluster of lights was visible from orbit in the city of London, the financial and business centre. It's the first time Extant has focused on an area I actually know. I did data analysis for a financial consultancy based in the Square Mile. It's a weird place in a lot of ways. No one lives there, but about a million people work there. Quaint alleyways and Edwardian pubs between glass and steel skyscrapers. It's a million times cleaner than the rest of the city, and on the weekends it's completely empty. You can smell the money. This was the only place in the world that looked like it still had anyone living in it. The field team was prepped, and Extant chose Hyde Park as the target for their arrival, since it was the largest nearby open space. Private Quintero had not been replaced, so the team was only three men strong. I don't know if Extant has a lack of manpower, or if they decided adding a newcomer could hinder the team as much as help it. I've always assumed the project has unlimited resources, but perhaps there isn't a bottomless supply of US Army combat veterans to pick from. It was the team's first time in the field since they lost Quintero. They don't seem to have been away from the business end for long. And again, Sergeant Brandt seems the kind of guy to get himself out of the barracks and onto the front line as soon as possible, regardless of how badly he's been put through the ringer. The team made it within 100 metres of their target location for the dimensional breach. They were 30 metres up, and even though they hit the serpentine, it was still a rough landing. Right away, the team saw the city had been abandoned over a long period of time. Buildings had been boarded up and sealed off, and the roads were empty of cars. The park itself was overgrown, and some of the road surfaces were broken up by plant growth. The elements were starting to wear on the buildings with a few broken windows, but no structural damage. Sergeant Brandt began the walk into the city of London, checking some of the ground floors for signs of habitation. There was none. The shops were empty of goods, especially anything perishable. There was no power to the traffic lights. It was silent, except for the birds. A short walk to the square mile by the team standards, so they did not need to secure transport. It was while walking down the centre of a main road that Warrant Officer Poulter noted one of the street signs, pointing to a reproduction enablement centre. Poulter was dismissive of Private Sandwich's suggestion that the place was a former brothel. Sergeant Brand agreed the sign suggested a departure from the base timeline, and adjusted their route to take them past the centre if it wasn't too far out of their way. The Reproduction Enablement Centre turned out to be on the site of St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Most of the hospital dates from the 18th century and the older buildings remained, but going by Poulter's photographs, they were encased in metal sheeting with ducting and vents and connected by sealed corridors. The doorways were covered in signs indicating procedures for entering sterile zones inside. The centre seemed abandoned, but not as overgrown as the rest of the city or as in poor repair. If London had been abandoned bit by bit, it was one of the last places to be mothballed. Poulter performed a flyby with a photographic drone and noted that an area within bounds of the hospital was covered in biohazard warnings and appeared to be a series of large metal containers the size of a small building each, surrounded by barbed wire fences and watched over by a guardhouse. Sergeant Brandt chose to enter the centre's grounds as an intelligence target of opportunity. The main gates had been chained shut, so the team had to scale one of the walls to get into the hospital grounds. They entered one of the buildings by forcing open the padlocked outer doors and passing through a short corridor, with signage indicating that visitors to the centre were to surrender all bags and outerwear before going further. 
Beyond this was a foyer with a reception desk and a waiting area, again with signs of tight security, including windows looking in from a security station. From a map mounted on the wall, the team ascertained the centre had an office and an admin section, a cold storage wing, a procedural wing, and a hospitality suite. A similar map in the security station indicated a barracks, disposal and incinerator room, and a detention cell away from public eyes. The state of the building was clean and well-maintained, considering the abandonment of the surrounding city. Most of it had been unused for some time, but the offices of the admin section still had some computers hooked up to battery power, suggesting it was in use after the city's power went out. There were remnants of food in the kitchen of the hospitality suite, a larger catered waiting area. The procedural wing was fully mothballed and sealed off with yellow tape around the door frames. Brandt opened one of the doors to reveal a number of operating rooms with what the team described as dentists' chairs. The tech guys later identified them as gynecological examination chairs. Some perished medical supplies for local anesthesia and sterilization remained in the cabinets. There were about 30 such rooms in the wing. The cold storage wing was sealed as well. There was no indication the refrigeration was still working, although from the additions to the structure outside, the entire building had once been heavily climate-controlled. A shower and disinfecting station had been added to the entrance to this wing, which was through one of the covered exterior corridors and seemed a much later addition. The main doors were blocked off by sheet metal, and only a smaller side door afforded access with an electronic card reader lock and a guard post with a bulletproof glass partition. The team noted a steel locker on the wall that probably contained firearms at some point. Sets of rubberized hooded coveralls were still in usable condition, and Brand elected to have the team don them before attempting entry, given the biohazard signs everywhere. The team then forced open the side door and entered the cold storage wing. Steel racks filled the two-story high chamber inside the cold storage wing, with thousands of compartments. Most were empty, but a few at the far end of the chamber still contained glass cylinders about the length and circumference of a human forearm. A robotic arm was mounted on a rail on the ceiling to allow the cylinders to be inserted and retrieved from the racks. The arm was inactive, just like the refrigeration system. A dark, mold-like stain covered one corner of the cold storage chamber. It covered the steel of the racks and discoloured a hundred or so of the remaining glass cylinders. Yellow tape on the walls and floor partitioned the discoloured area, indicating it should not be entered. The walls and floor were covered in stringy, fibrous growths, like plant roots. The team reported the smell, beneath a lingering stench of disinfectant, was not unlike dead bodies. A single glass cylinder, on the other side of the room from the discoloration, was not empty. Porter found and examined it. The cylinder was full of clear liquid with a bluish tint, in which was suspended a tiny, fleshy object the size and shape of a kidney bean. It was held in place by silver threads. Poulter's suspicion, later confirmed from his photographs, was that it was an early-stage human fetus, suspended in the fluid that acted as a preservative. Brandt ordered the team to move on to the fenced area Poulter had noted earlier, which was identified by signage as being for biological waste disposal. This was not an order received with enthusiasm. 
The team left the cold storage building and forced open a gate in the wire fence surrounding the containers. Brant opened one of the containers and inside were hundreds of broken glass cylinders in a mass of black-red fibrous tendrils. The other containers had similar contents and the fibrous growths and discoloration had spread outside some of the containers onto the ground. Poulter speculated the waste was to be incinerated, but that the service that incinerated it was shut down while the waste was still being produced. Sergeant Brand ordered the team onto their original objective. They paused for rest, and though they would usually eat at this point, none of the team were hungry. They reached the City of London on foot and identified the target building as a six-story office block. The sun had set, and the only lights in the city were on the fifth floor of this building. Aside from the lit floor, there were still no signs of habitation. The front doors were automatic, and although unpowered, they were easy to force open. The building had been abandoned in good order, with most of the furniture and fittings having been stripped out some time before. The team made their way via the stairs to the fifth floor, where they found what was formerly an open-plan office, where bunk beds and basic furnishings had been set up, including a hot plate for cooking. Basic plumbing had been hooked up to the lavatories and a toilet cubicle was repurposed as a shower. One area was partitioned by wooden panels covered in printouts and newspaper pages. Behind the panels, the team saw a sleeping bag and some clothes strewn about. The floor had signs of being used as a makeshift accommodation until recently and was the closest thing to a sign of human life they'd found. The place looked used. More of a feel than anything. Someone had been sleeping and eating there not long ago. We looked around the panels and saw a kind of camp with some sheets hung up on the office windows as curtains. Uh, There was a camp table with a stack of board games, a pallet of bottled water and a pile of the empty bottles, a, a kettle and a box of instant noodles. The lights in the kettle were wired up to connections in the walls, I guess to some solar panels or a fuel generator on the roof. That's how come the lights were still working. There was another sheet strung up like a canopy, and it had half fallen down onto a camp chair. I knew before I pulled the sheet aside what I'd see. I just sort of assumed I'd find a body there, and there it was. It hadn't been there long, not compared to how long the rest of the city had been deserted. It was most of the way to being mummified. Not many bugs in here, so it had dried out without rotting away completely. I'd say it was a few months old, maybe a year? I think it was an old man. His hair and beard were gray. He wore a set of coveralls and walking boots. I don't know how he died, but it looked like he sat down there for a nap and just not woken up. I guess he didn't turn the lights off before he died. I can't say why he'd put the awning up or the partitions to make himself a little room. It looked like he was the only person there. Perhaps it was to make the place feel more like a home. He'd covered the partitions in newspapers and printouts, though there was no sign where he'd got them from. I think it was a kind of memorial. Maybe to remind himself of what had gone before or confirm to him it was real. There's no way to know how people are going to act when they're completely alone. The printouts were emails and reports. I thought they might be from the Reproduction Enablement Center. The oldest newspapers were more than 80 years old, assuming the present date in this timeline is the same as in ours. They were yellow and crumbling. Those early ones were talking about the population panic and a solution to it. The Universal Eugenics Code. I guess eugenics wasn't a dirty word on this world. The historical events that discredited the idea didn't happen here, maybe. Or they went down in a different way. 
Looks like the population panic was about the world's population getting too big to be supported. Same thing as in our world, only it was either worse earlier on here or it became an issue much earlier. The headlines were full of scientists saying how the human race was going to go extinct or go back to the Stone Age when all the food and oil ran out. The Universal Eugenics Code was the answer. I had to piece it together as we checked the place out, but it was a mass sterilization program. Kind of. People would be rendered unable to reproduce by something they released into water supplies. Then, when someone wanted to have kids, they went to a special kind of hospital. In vitro fertilization was way more advanced in this timeline, and it was the other half of the eugenics code. An embryo would be created, I guess from the sperm and egg of the couple applying, although I couldn't tell for sure, and later implanted in the woman when it was ready. The code was first implemented in the developing world, which didn't seem to have much say in it. There were screw-ups early on, but the trials in poor countries worked out eventually, and the code was extended to developed countries. It looked like a sort of medical-social engineering crossed with colonialism. Maybe that's just my modern liberal sensibilities kicking in, though. Liberal. For the army, at least. Eventually, nobody was being conceived naturally. Presumably, there were uncontacted tribes or whatever that were still doing it the old-fashioned way, but nobody on the world's radar. There were debates about whether it had worked or not, movements to bring back natural conception, but nothing compared to the scale of the eugenics code. There were thousands of reproduction enablement centers and whole government departments deciding how many people would be born each year. And then something happened. I couldn't tell exactly what. Maybe our dead guy couldn't bring himself to record the details. The headlines were about whether it was deliberate, an act of terrorism or war, or whether it was an accident. As best I could work out, it was an infection that got into the artificial reproduction system. My guess is there was something all the centers used, like artificial amniotic fluid or whatever, and it got infected. Or maybe it was some kind of terrorism and something was released into a bunch of them at once. But the centers went down. The system broke. Everyone was sterilized and there was no way to have kids anymore. I assume they tried to fix it. Looks like the infection or whatever it was wouldn't go away. It always came back and every year more people died without being replaced. Stuff started falling apart because there weren't enough people to keep them going. This went on over decades, but there wasn't a way to reverse it. We started dying out. The printouts are about experiment results. Looks like they were trying to get artificial reproduction working up until they had to abandon the center in London. All their attempts failed. The infection wiped out all of the eggs they fertilized. Eventually, they started dying off of old age and had to abandon it, just when they thought they might be getting somewhere. I don't know when our guy died. I guess there were a handful in London for a long time, holding on without the numbers or resources to do anything. Maybe the guy in the deck chair was the last one. The last one anywhere. The team returned to Hyde Park and achieved dimensional breach back to the base timeline. They were more than 300 meters and 45 minutes from their target upon return, the deviation possibly due to the lower weight in the capsule with only three team members. Parts of the debriefing process are redacted, as is some of the sound recording from the mission. Again, it's done skillfully, but again, the project can't hide it entirely. 
My educated guess is there was a glass cylinder of biological matter wrapped up in an airtight hazard suit in the capsule with the team when they returned. It's not a surprise anymore, although I can't say all my questions have been answered. On the surface of it, the Universal Eugenics Code worked. The data the team brought back from that last Londoner's Wall of Memories indicated the world's economies were thriving. It was getting close to the perfect world the project wants to make, except for that one tiny detail that its means of making babies could be instantly wiped out by bad luck or malice. In purely numerical, economical terms, that's the downside of the program, the way it makes the human species vulnerable to a single disease or disaster. But there was much more to my misgivings about the history I glimpsed in the data. Controlling reproduction that precisely and completely gives power to a very few over a great many. Who got to wield that power? How were they chosen? Should anyone have that power? Should the project? Those people had control over who survived. Not individual people, but languages, cultures, ethnicities, even ideas and philosophies. How many communities and cultures had that world already deleted by simply not granting them the opportunity to pass on their genetics and so much more to children someone decided would never be born? In a few generations, how many more would have been eliminated because they weren't deemed productive or pretty enough? Because they raised their children to think things the controllers didn't agree with? Because they were the wrong colour? Wiped out in a quiet, smiling genocide? Because the numbers didn't lie? On a purely technical level, my recommendations to the project board will be about not putting all our fertilised eggs in one basket and making sure there's a plan B. But I don't think a technically perfect solution to total population control, if it's possible, is even desirable, if it means someone deciding which parts of the human species get to continue. Diversity means a lot more than just ensuring a single genetic trait doesn't doom us to death by disease. It's part of what we are. We fragment, we argue, we develop in millions of different ways. We're defined by how different we can be. The Universal Eugenics Code almost found a way to safeguard humans, but at the expense of humanity. The empty husk of a planet the field team saw was bad enough, but if it had survived a few more generations, I wonder if it might have been more disturbing by far. Even with that thought, I found myself imagining what it must have been like to see the generations passing by and not being replaced. Children disappearing from the streets. Houses going empty, businesses and public services being abandoned without the manpower to keep them going. This time, it wasn't a quick death for the world. It was a slow one. But even so, one day they woke up and realized they should abandon whole cities. Whole countries. They woke up into a world where suddenly there was no one under 18, then 30, then 50, and one day a man woke up to find he was the only one left. Maybe that's why the next time he slept, he didn't wake up again.
Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara. And I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. And Poulter was Russ Moore. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.